and welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Leah Heigl and I am here with my co-host Aidan Muir and today we will be chatting about nutrition recommendations for endometriosis. So a little bit of background before we get into the nutrition stuff on endo itself. Uh, It is a condition where tissue that is similar to the tissue that typically lines the inside of the uterus, which is called the endometrium, grows outside of the uterus. This condition affects one in 10 women of childbearing age, which really is quite a lot of people. Um, It is often painful and, and comes with a whole host of symptoms. Like the symptoms can really be quite broad, um, but it can really affect someone's quality of life. I know so many people with endo and it really does, it does impact their day-to-day life quite dramatically. And the issue with having endometriosis is there's technically no cure for it. Although it can be, or is often medically managed with things like hormonal birth control or different kinds of surgery, maybe even particularly um, like hysterectomies in in some cases, there is no actual cure for it outside of that. So nutrition should not be viewed as something that can cure endometriosis or is a whole solution to even managing it, Um, but it can be one of the things you can look at in order to ease symptoms and and manage the condition as a whole. So I always like to start with pitching how nutrition can help with endometriosis because it is a bit of a situation where there are kind of two camps like on one camp there's people who view nutrition as the solution for everything and this is not a cure for endo but on the other hand there is a camp that is kind of like nothing you can do with nutrition for endo like it's Mm -hmm. it's just got to be medically managed and the answer is somewhere in the middle as with most things but starting with pitching with some places where it could help the clearest one that it can definitely help with is ibs symptoms so constipation diarrhea bloating etc etc while nutrition won't solve symptoms in every situation it is super clear that it can play a role there and we'll talk more about that as we go the next few things are a bit more debatable. There's less clear evidence and everything like that. But let's look at the mechanisms through which nutrition could help endometriosis. One could be reducing inflammation. The next one could be potentially managing estrogen levels. And the third one could be reducing the production of harmful tissue. That's a very tricky area to navigate, but there is a bit of evidence of benefit in all three of those areas it's just how far that extends which is the bigger question and what strategies would be the most effective so starting in the 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 clearest space when it comes to nutrition and endo is that ibs specific stuff Um, and we are starting here because it is the the clearest link so many people with endo do experience some kind of ibs type symptoms due to their condition One study highlighted that 72% of women with both IBS and endo who undertook the low FODMAP diet for four weeks showed an over 50% improvement in symptoms. So clearly like with this IBS related, like endo related IBS, there is stuff that we can do from a nutrition perspective, particularly something like the low FODMAP diet that can help. 
most other concepts of IBS management also apply here. So like we have plenty of content on the ideal nutrition blog post about managing different IBS like symptoms outside of just going for straight to the low FODMAP diet. Cause again, that's not something that everyone with endo yeah. needs, but it is something that if you do have quite severe IBS symptoms, it could be quite helpful, obviously given that, that study. Um, but yeah, we have a plenty of content on there for managing things like specifically bloating, constipation, diarrhea. Um, and there are things that we can do nutritionally, like the nutrition strategies to help each individual, one of those symptoms. And that would apply in all IBS kind of cases and, and like, endo-related IBS is is also falling under that umbrella. Yeah, I view that that FODMAP study as a good example as a proof of concept, just being like, if somebody did claim there's nothing you can do with nutrition that could help with any endometriosis symptom, you'd be like, literally one approach, one strategy. One strategy. 72% of yeah. women notice a gradient 50% improvement. So it's like, okay, like there, there is stuff you can do. But yeah, we wouldn't necessarily jump straight to a low FODMAP diet. Like there's so many options. There's heaps of options. So many options. But it's just like, obviously we can do some pretty awesome stuff with nutrition when it comes to that yeah. IBS stuff. Now, moving on to the next area where it's a bit broader, a bit less clear. Um, anti-inflammatory style diet super broad but general principles of a healthy diet also apply to endometriosis for example dietary approaches such as the mediterranean diet fit into this category and there is some early promising evidence of benefit between the mediterranean diet and endometriosis um, another specific area of research within this category is omega-3 intake and this is where it starts to get a bit more mixed like one I see some people over-hyping it. I see some people under-hyping it. And animal research, which I don't normally like to start with animal research, but animal research has indicated that omega-3s can help reduce the formation of those cystic lesions. So it's like, that's really promising if that translates to humans. Um, but once again, don't like to read too much into animal research. When we, have, when we look at human research, which we have less of, we have research indicating that people with higher than average omega-3 intakes are 22% less likely to develop endo. This is another interesting area of endometriosis research being like, we actually have a lot of factors that are linked with reducing or increasing the risk of endometriosis. Mm -hmm. How much does that translate to the management of endometriosis is a bit of a different question, but we know that reducing the risk of endometriosis, there's a lot of things that we do have far more clear research on. Um, and if you're questioning, say, the omega-3 aspect, like you're not fully sold on that, we can look at the flip side and be like, okay, let's look at other forms of dietary fat and see if this plays a role. One example is that there's research on people with high trans fat intakes that have found a 48% increased risk of endo. So it's like theoretically, if you decrease some trans fats, increase omega-3s, there'd be some pretty clear benefits. Um, specifically looking at people who already have endo because that's a bit more interesting to me right now is one study found that omega-3 supplements reduce pain in those with endo that's a good sign but i would still caution against fully buying into that without more research because a few things one omega-3 research can often be mixed in many fields i wouldn't just make big decisions based on one study but two if this is relevant, it would likely be far more relevant for people with low baseline intakes of omega-3. Like if you've got somebody who had very low omega-3 dietary intake and you gave them supplements, they'd probably get more benefit than somebody with a higher intake. 
The other aspect of the anti-inflammatory kind of approach is antioxidant-rich foods. I think it's a good idea to increase intake of antioxidant-rich foods in general. But looking at it from a research perspective, there is some very promising research looking at antioxidant supplementation in the form of vitamin C and vitamin E in relatively high dosages that has found significant reductions in pelvic pain and mild improvements in period pain and cramps. Once again, super promising. Does that mean I go out and recommend vitamin C and vitamin E to every single person who comes with endo? Not necessarily, but it's like if we're looking for angles where nutrition can play a role, that's some of the more promising stuff from that kind of angle of looking at it. Getting on to the next topic, we're going to talk a little bit about red meat. And I hate being like the plant-based person, the vegan, <laughs> banging on about yeah. red meat, but I just happened to kind of um, fall on this on this topic. Um, but research on red meat is, I mean, it's always difficult to interpret, but looking at the research, like higher red meat intake is somewhat linked with the development of endometriosis. And there are some proposed mechanisms around this involving heme iron, but the reason it can be difficult to interpret is because like how much of this link is due to the combination of things like saturated fat, low fiber, higher calorie intake, lower intake of antioxidants. It's really hard to say and like have this clear link between red meat intake and the development of endometriosis when there's so many other factors that can be playing a role that that need to be considered. Regardless, at a minimum, we would be cautious of having a really high red meat intake. I mean, I tend to just generally for everyone try to follow like the World Health Organization recommendations um, that it does recommend that your intake of red meat should be less than 500 grams of raw red meat weekly. And um, so I, I tend to just throw that out to most clients, um, but particularly ones with with endometriosis or ones that are worried about developing certain conditions. Um, and I think that's just like a good place to draw a line in the sand basically. Um, but realistically, I think what matters more is the dietary context of what that, where that red meat is. Like if you have a high or even moderate red meat intake and the rest of your diet looks really low in plant foods, low in omega threes, low in fiber, I think that's going to be obviously a lot more detrimental than someone who has red meat intake that is moderate, but is eating a ton of plant foods, high fiber, high antioxidant intake and, and everything. So I think that dietary context matters a lot more than looking at red meat specifically as the problem. Yeah. And in previous podcasts, or at least in one podcast, I've given my spiel about this whole healthy user bias thing with red meat yeah. research and how it's hard to interpret how the wider context matters, all those things as, as well. But this is still something that I, I care about a little bit with endo being like, I don't know how this, how much this matters, but it's enough to make, it's enough to factor into my decisions. Using an example, I got a client recently who was in the bodybuilding world who was having red meat every single day. Mm -hmm. And my recommendation to her was to limit to less than 500 grams and still just reach her protein targets using other options because like there'll be no downside of her doing that. One of the pieces of pushback I got from her was that she has a history of um, iron deficiency. But that's one I'm like, I do understand that, but can we address that in other ways? 
other places to get your iron that maybe yeah. don't have those kind of negative drawbacks. Yeah, just because yeah. it's like, I don't want to say it's like playing with fire, but it's kind of like, if it's, this is one thing that I'm like, oh, I don't know how much this matters or everything like that, I'm still not super comfortable doing seven days a week, high red mm. meat intake. Um, yeah, just from the iron perspective, so to speak. Totally. Yeah. So the next one is looking at gluten. And this is a another nuanced area that I definitely don't like talking about in shorter form content, but on podcasts, we're on a podcast where I can talk a bit more in detail. I think this is the place for it. I, whether I'm right or wrong, I believe that listeners of this podcast are very intelligent people and they can read between the lines of some of the stuff that I'm about to say and not take what I'm about to say too literally before hearing the context after. So technically the research is surprisingly positive with um, going gluten three gluten-free and having endometriosis. So one study with 207 participants showed that 75% of people with endometriosis had a decrease in pain after going gluten-free for 12 months. That is absurdly positive. I always think it's worthwhile being skeptical. If I just saw that study in isolation, I'd be like, it's interesting. Yeah, (laughs) but it's only one study. But it's one study. This study was repeated under similar circumstances <laughs> with similarly impressive results. In the repeated study, they did over a three-month period and people had an average drop in pain of around 50%. Once again, that is very, very promising. Like you've heard me like reaching around with like maybe omega-3s for a small reduction in pain, maybe some vitamin C, vitamin E, like all those kind of things. None of them were like this impressive. Um, but here's where the intelligent listener aspect comes into play. Don't take that as a recommendation of me being like, go gluten-free, listen to the next section. So I am personally not at a point where I'm recommending gluten-free diet to those with endometriosis. I think it would take a fair bit more than even though those two promising studies, I think it would take a fair bit more um, to convince me of that. And then the next bit where it gets more interesting is like, is it the gluten or is it other components? Using one example, fructans are also in wheat and fructans are a FODMAP. We know very clearly that that can contribute to IBS symptoms in certain individuals. Reducing gluten or eliminating gluten also reduces intake of fructans. That would lead to significant improvements in IBS symptoms. Would that translate to pain or anything like that? Not necessarily, but I'm using that example to highlight that in the IBS space up until, I don't know, around the 2010s or a little bit after, there was a big concept of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. These days, the consensus mostly is that that's not really about gluten. It's actually about fructans in that example. The point I'm getting at is when these people went gluten-free, what did they cut out? They cut out wheat and maybe a few other gluten-containing foods. Could there be other components in wheat that are causing this? Could there be other dietary changes that occur when you go gluten-free? Um, using an example, if you go gluten-free... Do you now have to eat less packaged foods on average? Do you now not have the luxury of eating out at restaurants and choosing as many things off the menu? There's hundreds of different components that can go on into this. That's one angle. As I said, I wouldn't necessarily go gluten-free based on this. But at the other other perspective, I also like to think about, what if somebody's like, hey, I want to try everything. <laughs> I want to try everything. Looking at the other perspective, it is possible to have an incredibly healthy diet without gluten as well. So even though this is not a recommendation or anything like that, or me thinking that gluten is actually the link here, it's another thing to consider. Yeah, and it's not necessarily something that's going to impact your health negatively by by doing it. Yeah. Um, 
The next topic to a similar vein is looking at dairy. Um, of course, the I, the vegan, gets both of the animal product <laughs> topics. You were the one that chose which section. I know. It just kind of <laughs> happened that way. And I was like, should I change these? Because I don't want to seem like I'm coming up against like the animal products. I thought um, it was intentional. <laughs> not at all. Um, but looking at this, so like dairy is not inflammatory and like neither is gluten in the absence of celiac disease of course so realistically there's not going to be an issue specifically with dairy and endometriosis but where we could find those two things interacting is since ibs and endo have an overlap there is it's worthwhile considering the possibility of lactose intolerance Mm -hmm. if you are experiencing symptoms after consuming dairy products. Like we obviously know if you have lactose intolerance and you eat high lactose dairy products, you're probably going to experience symptoms. And we know there is an overlap between endo and IBS. Um, And I think realistically that is where the link is the strongest Um, although there is some research that has actually linked dairy consumption with a lower, lower risk of developing endometriosis, which I also think is relevant to mention, um, in that we just, we know it's not going to be one of those things where dairy is causing or significantly increasing the risk of endometriosis or making the condition worse outside of the IBS related stuff. Yeah. And another thing, like, I wish I got some stats up on this, but like, a large percentage of the population is lactose intolerant. And the reason why there's such a broad range of stats, like I've seen things ranging from like within certain populations, like anywhere as low as like 15 up to like 90% of like certain populations mm-hmm. having lactose intolerance. And the reason why there's often such broad ranges, because it depends on your definition, like how much lactose do you have to consume to get symptoms or whatever. But this could be a, a more complex topic, but like say you have multiple things that are potentially triggers for IBS symptoms and say you're one of those people that would fit the criteria for lactose intolerance, but you've never really made the link yourself because it's never been serious enough or anything like that. Say you have another trigger or another two or three or four triggers of your IBS symptoms and consuming lactose contributes to that. You might cross a threshold where you get symptoms and potentially going lactose-free could be a thing. Um, Super easy thing to test though. (laughs) Super easy. Just have a lot of lactose in a single sitting if you get symptoms, probably lactose intolerance, <laughs> easy way to check this and rule out any other form of dairy being um, the, the cause would just be to have lactose-free milk the next day and see what happens. Yeah, and I think with this, it, like, it's good to point out that it's just you having to go, if you get these symptoms from lactose, you just have to go low lactose or no, no lactose, um, but you can still consume dairy products that are either naturally low in lactose or lactose-free. Yeah. Uh, another topic which is once again complex but it's worth touching on is estrogen so elevated levels of estrogen are often seen with endometriosis for a variety of reasons and this can affect symptoms such as fatigue heavy periods and aggravated pms it also potentially contributes to growth of tissue outside the uterus um once again it's a very complex topic because it's like the endo can cause the increase in in estrogen as well um and i am very much not being like follow this diet cures estrogen etc <laughs> etc et but yeah a bit of a less clear role for how diet can play a role but there are some examples for example a higher fiber diet 
reduces excess estrogen resorption in the large intestines, theoretically lowering estrogen levels, which theoretically could carry over to a reduction in all of those other symptoms. We do not have clear research on strategies looking at this specifically in endo, but it is another option. And we also do see medical options around this approach as well. So it could be an area that diet can also play a role too. So to summarize the key points from this discussion, it is likely best with endometriosis to follow an overall anti-inflammatory style diet that is just generally quote unquote healthy, but rich in plant foods, fiber, antioxidants, and omega-3. It's probably beneficial to limit or at least moderate red meat intake. And obviously, manage IBS symptoms appropriately based on the symptoms that you have, which may include going through a FODMAP elimination diet process, but it might also just be general IBS recommendations regarding specific symptoms. This has been episode 104 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I was looking at Spotify yesterday and I saw that we've got 4.9 stars on average. Um, So shout out to the people who've given us some negative, but it makes it look a lot more legit. Um, If you could leave a positive review, I would greatly appreciate that.